Welcome to the Attentive Heart Podcast, where we explore how an integration of mind, body, and spirit make us whole and enable us to become more compassionate to ourselves and to others. I'm your host, John Gribwich, and today my guest is Michael. So let's start right off here by how about you telling us a little bit about your background and what occupies most of your time these days. It's great to be here, John. My name is Michael McCord, and I am currently the CFO of San Francisco Zen Center, which is three different Zen temples that are under one umbrella. And I'm also a resident priest at San Francisco Zen Center. As far as what occupies my time, managing the accounting office and all of our various compliance tax and accounting needs, as well as working as an officer that is on the board of San Francisco Zen Center. And I am living right next to our main temple. So I am there as a practicing monk every morning, sitting meditation, taking part in service, chanting, meditation is eating, orioki, and teaching all of these things as well as a teacher. And I have students that work with me one-on-one in regard to their Zen practice and basically figuring out their life. So that in a nutshell pretty much happens every day. It's just really exciting to have you here because this is a one priest being another priest from a different <laughs> religious tradition, but it's so similar in so many ways. And I think that we're going to be able to touch upon a lot of those places of intersection in this little discussion. Yeah. You know, Michael, I first got to meet you or really just got to see you, I should say, more or less at Young Urban Zen. And this was a long time ago, maybe even a year ago now was the first mm-hmm. time that I was there. And you gave a presentation. I was like, okay, I know that this guy clearly at least has some type of teaching background because he's so good at being able to take people where they are and bring them to the the next place that he wants to take them uh, while respecting everyone in the room. And so I was just really taken by the fact that you really seem to have a vocation in this space. So can you just talk a little bit about how did you become a, a Buddhist priest? I know I've personally heard your story a little bit more, but it's an interesting one. So how about you just unpack that a little bit and start wherever you want to start? I think that the interest in, I guess you'd say, being a priest started with my upbringing in Christianity. I was in a non-denominational church, the Worldwide Church of God, and went to their college, got a degree in theology, wanted to be a minister. And it was at a time when a lot of the theology of that church was changing. The founder had died a few years previous to me entering the college, and I found myself in my mid-20s with a degree in theology, but not really relating to brand or line of Christianity that I was involved with. I had a lot of, I think, sincere intention and devotion and a lot of respect also for what I had learned. It was just that it really didn't resonate with me. And I had been also volunteering in the Middle East for a year before I finished my degree during my undergraduate process and studied a lot of Islam and had to answer a lot of questions about where I was coming from. So to make a long story short, I kind of put that on the shelf, that whole thought, almost like disillusionment with my religious path and had gone out into the corporate world trying to figure out how to make a living and had a career in technology first in my 20s. And then I migrated into a career in banking and finance in my 30s 
And I got to know a friend of a friend who was coming by San Francisco Zen Center. And I was working in San Francisco as an area manager for a global bank. And I was very busy. My mind was busy. And I wanted to find a way to really center and calm. And it didn't seem like anything I was doing in my free time was really bringing me to any sort of calm or center. I came to San Francisco Zen Center in 2007 with this friend of a friend, and I discovered their type of sitting in Soto Zen called Shikantaza that I found very interesting, a little different twist on the normal meditation. Kept going by there for a few years, and eventually I left the bank and decided I was going to take some time off. I did a three-week intensive, and they said I could stay there for a few months. And so just slowly, I got integrated into studying Soto Zen, and then I found out I could do a retreat off the grid at Tassajara, one of their monasteries, and that was for three months. And so I decided to do that. A deep dive, six to eight hours of meditation a day, getting up at 3.50 in the morning, no internet, no phone, no wallet, no keys, just what was right in front of you. And after three months of that, I wanted to do more of it. So that's basically what's been going on here for the last 14, 15 years is I kept re-upping for three months until eventually I realized I was one of the senior administrators and I wanted to teach this. About 10 years ago, nine and a half years ago, I ordained as a priest because I wanted to teach this. It just seemed like the most practical thing I had found for addressing all the questions I had in my corporate life as well as my personal life. And I also like the fact that it wasn't dogmatic or too much in a box, that it was really wide open to being practiced by people who were Christians, people who were Jews, people who were Muslim, and some folks who just said, I'm only a Buddhist. And I'm not sure when the actual commitment made, but there was something tied back to my early path and my teacher, Ryushin Paul Haller, who originally came to San Francisco from Ireland, raised in Belfast as Catholic and had a huge falling out with the Catholic Church. And then in his 30s and 40s, as he became a Zen priest, came to really appreciate what the Catholic Church gave him and his teachings and his original devotion and ended up doing a lot of interfaith work with um, Brother David Standel Rast um, at Tassajara doing joint workshops between the two. Um, I believe he's a, a Benedictine monk. Paul helped me, I think, reconnect to some of the stuff that I had before and not just throw the baby out with the bathwater. First off, that's really interesting. And, and one of these days, I really hope to be able to sit down with Paul. I'd love to hear more about his story. But I'm interested about this three-month uh, intensive retreat. Maybe let's just unpack that a little bit. Is there a rationale behind it being three months? Is there an idea that somehow things will be somehow embedded or habitual or that you cultivate enough routines that now this is a way of life? Or is it just somewhat random. What's happening for those three months? In the Japanese tradition, which a lot of it came from China in the Chan Buddhism and Soto Zen has the similar sort of training monastery, city monastery setup that you would find in Japan and China, where the remote monastery would be in the wilderness, typically in a place that would be in the mountains. Typically it would be cold in the winter, hot in the summer, but it would usually be, be near a river 
And that is there are a lot of different things to learn from these different rule settings and topographical features and geographical features. And the place that we purchased in Tassajara near Big Sur is up in the mountains, 1,500 to 2,000 feet on a river at the base of a mountain. The, the thought of this is that people would usually go to a rural monastery um, for two or three years and establish their practice. Uh, a, a place where they could get away from the city, get away from their family, get away from um, all the trappings of the society and could really be able to see their own stuff come forward. It's easy at times to feel in modern society like my um, bother is because of health or taxes or my job or my neighbor or education or something that's going on in society or the news or the problem that this city has with infrastructure or whatever it is that a person might have that's bothering them. And there's a lot of things that are legit, but it can obscure the fact that a lot of my bother, if not most of it, is actually Mm self-generated. And going to a place where you don't have taxes and TV and mail and a wallet and things to pay for, for three months, you have this small room, typically unheated, sleeping in a sleeping bag with a knit cap on, usually gets down near freezing, sometimes below freezing at night, wake up in your room, it's 30 degrees, it's 3.50 in the morning, and all you have to think about is going to the meditation hall. And you put on your robes, and you walk in near darkness to the meditation hall, and you start the day with a two-hour sit. It is broken up in the middle with a 10-minute Kenyan or walking meditation, so basically two 50-minute sits. And then after that, you eat orioki sitting at your table, at your place that you meditate, turn around and face the room as opposed to the wall, sitting cross-legged. And then there's the whole ritual of how you have this orioki set, the nested bowls tied up with a cloth that has chopsticks and a spoon. There's a whole process of chanting and how they're brought forward, how they're held, how they're put on the meal board. It's a meditation of eating. And so you learn orioki. The abbreviated class is probably something that could be taught for hours. The initial intro class is about 90 minutes, but then there's basically 40 minutes of ceremony that includes seven minutes of eating. And people will come in the room and serve you as servers, and there's a way to bow to them and a way to indicate how much food you want, and there's no talking. This is like the beginning of the day, and the days go four days on, one day off. And so the off day, you get to sleep until 4.50 in the morning, and then you sit for a couple of hours, do orioki, and then you're actually off all day to clean your clothes, no washing machines, all by hand. And then in the evening at 6 p.m., come back to the meditation hall, have an orioki dinner, and then sit the rest of the evening until 9 p.m. and go to bed. But the days that are on, there's classes and then there's sits, there's a work period, and there's lunch orioki, there's dinner orioki. So the whole day pretty much runs from 3.50 in the morning until 9 p.m. at night. So you're getting a little over six hours of sleep, and that goes on for 90 days. And what you find that orioki literally means just enough. So you're only eating like enough food so that you can sit, and you don't need a lot of food just to sit. 
Mm-hmm. And usually when you go to bed, you fall asleep right away. And then once you get into the energy of that, the actual sitting, when you learn how to meditate and to really be with what's going on, there's a certain energy that comes from that, that you can even, if you follow the schedule exactly the way that it's been designed, you find that after two or three weeks, you actually have more energy than what you normally do. As long as you aren't bringing a lot of sugar and eating it in your room or you're not sleeping in, but you're following the schedule and being a part of the community, usually two or three weeks and you get this extra kind of boost of energy and kind of a clarity of mind. Now, the 90 days has been studied in many different traditions and many different scientific studies. You can even study the oxytocin of people in love. And Mm -hmm. usually people that um, study relationships will talk about like this 90 day window where you are attracted to someone and then you have this mad sort of romance. And then three months in, you have the real relationship. There's something about a 90-day window that you can find in many different traditions and many different studies in physiology. You study the AA tradition in the big book. And in the AA tradition of Alcoholics Anonymous, they have this tradition called 90 and 90 where they have noticed that if people can go to 90 meetings in 90 days, their chance of staying sober greatly increases. Mm-hmm. So you can find that that three-month window having a lot to do with all the seasons uh, on the planet are 90 days. You have four quarters, you have four seasons. There's a lot that has to do with the clock of a human and ingraining something in them as far as building like a lasting habit. Now, of course, habits can be broken or forgotten or all the rest of it, but it's a good way to build um, the beginning of a foundation. So um, people typically study one subject during this period of time. The leader of the practice period will choose a subject. They'll study the Four Noble Truths of Buddhism. That's what their mind will be wrapped around. They won't read books about anything else. They will just study Dharma books and they'll study about the Four Noble Truths and all the talks will be about that. And then in between, they will meditate and not necessarily on that, but it's the type of meditation they do in Zen, which isn't actually technically meditation. It is just letting whatever arises arise without adding anything to it. Mm-hmm. The the Ongo, as they call it in Japan, we call it practice period is a 90-day period of time where you do not leave the monastery and nobody comes into the monastery. It's a unique container of practice that you are there supporting all the other people and they're supporting you. And you get very clear or have, I guess you'd say, moments of clarity about how much of this bother that you have in life is self-generated. You don't have all the big things to worry about. You just have your bowls and your cushion to sit on and your robes. Mm -hmm. And so you'll notice that you have bother arise by the person next to you and how they're moving too much. Or in Oriyoki, they're not passing the condiments as they should. Or there's little things Mm -hmm. that will start to... And you'll notice body sensations that are just the same as when big things happened, quote-unquote, out in the world. And you'll get the same body sensation of the anger or the impatience or the worry or the whatever it is you struggle with coming forward over something that has intentionally been made so pedantic and mundane that you have to see the comedy 
in the amount to which you are bothered by this person, this thing, mm -hmm. this mistake. Mm -hmm. And you start to see, wait a second, a lot of my life and a lot of my bother and a lot of my how my day is going is actually internal. It's not happening to me. And that's probably where it all starts with Zen. Just for you personally, what was it like moving into that space, going through that schedule each day? Were you ready for the intensity of that? I know that you said you did stuff at City Center before you went to Tassajara, isn't that right? Yeah, or, yeah. yeah. So you, you were introduced to some level of it, but were, were you ready for the extremeness of that experience? I guess no one's really ever ready, but at least how did you adapt or what, what was the process right. of adapting? I lived at Tassajara for six and a half years and I did 13 ongos in a row. And in the summer, there's no practice period for six months. And then you have two September to December and January through March. And when I first went there, I had done some sitting and I had done some work in Zen, but it was new to me. I come from a military family and background in regard to my just, I think, culture and makeup. My mother's side was military. My father was a graduate of the Air Force Academy and met my mom on an officer's daughter's dance. The thing that I had to come around to was not the physicality or the asceticism. I actually really embraced stuff like that. Like how far can we push ourselves and can we do a marathon and then can we make it longer? And then who can hold their breath the longest? This is something that really appeals to my psyche. Hmm. I learned very quickly on that had nothing to do with Zen, that the setup is ascetic and that each person will approach it in a different way with their own stuff in an unbalanced way. Some mm -hmm. people will be intimidated by all the physicality of it. Other people will whine about everything. Some people like me will go in and try to just do all the sits and do them longer and better than everybody and try to get an A in Zen. And there's no way to get an A in Zen. And that's the thing you start to learn. I think the first couple of practice periods for me were me getting that out of my system and starting to realize that I was just doing the same thing in Zen that I was doing in the corporate world. I was trying to justify my um, existence by my accomplishments, and I wanted everyone to know me as the person that always showed up and showed up early and volunteered for everything and was never tired and learned all the chants by heart, which I did, uh, memorized the chant book, and that had nothing to do with really why I was there. It was the structure of why I was there. It was the container for practice. But I was trying to accomplish Zen the same way I was trying to accomplish other things. And I realized that people don't usually compare themselves by saying, I'm pretty compassionate, but somebody else, this person over there, they're more compassionate than me. <laughs> I'm more patient. I'm more understanding than the... So I, I own my old, what used to be Twitter account. I used to mock myself by my slogan was I'm more, more humble than your average monk. <laughs> and I think that what I started to realize was that it's, it's great to be committed and dependable and all that sort of thing. But that's really not the thing to be worshipped. It's doing the inner work. And about three or four practice periods into Tassajara, I think I then started to do the inner work. Mm. 
where I was more focused and more bothered by not the physical sensations of my body. I have knee problems and scoliosis and sitting was always a big physical challenge for me anyway, but I think I embraced that challenge, but then it got more to dealing with what was in my head and not wanting to be with what was coming up and not wanting to see what was arising in my meditation. And that's when the real work I think starts. And so it it was an evolution for me to stop trying to turn Zen into a self-help program where I was doing it for me. And along the way, I learned about the Bodhisattva vow, as it's called. And in Zen, you don't talk much about enlightenment or being an enlightened person or trying to reach different mental states. There are things to practice that can be very helpful down that path. But the whole, I guess you'd say, intention of the Zen path would be to practice so that I can make it easier for other people to practice. Mm. to be less internally burdened and bothered so that I can hold other people's burden more spaciously without being overwhelmed by it. When I started to understand that a little bit more as the intention for practice, that I'm actually practicing so that I can be more of a servant of humanity rather than Michael's just trying to calm his mind down so that he can be a better banker or accomplish my goals in golf or jogging or whatever, that's when I think it started to go deeper into really the more the spiritual path. And that's why I stayed at Tassajara so long, is that I realized, wow, now after three or four practice periods, I'm starting to understand what this is about, and it's starting to take some sort of root. And that curiosity just kept me signing up for one practice period after another, Until at one point, I don't know, six or seven practice periods in, they asked me to be an administrator. Wow. Congratulations. (laughs) When I hear that, when I hear that as a priest, I'm always like, that's not really what I want to do. But (laughs) people have callings for that. So I think that you do. I think I enjoy it more than your average person that comes to Zen. If I have my preference, most days I just want to be sent to the kitchen and chop carrots mindfully. I hear you when you say that, and I feel like we we always need that time to to chop the carrots. But if we're really honest with ourselves, I don't think we can chop the carrots that long. (laughs) We probably feel as if, oh, we got to respond to what it is that we, I would say, are being um, responding to within within our inner self. As you were talking about how so much of Zen is ultimately geared to be better outwardly towards others, to hold space for others, to be able to show compassion. One criticism that I've experienced in my own exploration of contemplative life, of meditation, has always been as if somehow this was a selfish practice, that it's it's nice that you have the luxury to go and and sit and just meditate. But I knew that as as much as I was paying attention to myself, it was so I could understand how I was really being led interiorly to show up for other people when I'm with them. We don't live this life alone ever. So it's impossible to to just do inner work for no reason other than to just somehow fall into like navel gazing or something. We're ordered. I always find it interesting too. One criticism I've also heard about Buddhism from people who don't 
subscribe to it is that if there's so much talk about ridding one of desire, then how does one ever become an agent for change or for justice? First off, what would you respond? How would you respond to that? Because, and also, we've been talking about Zen so much, and, and we know that not all Buddhists are are Zen Buddhists, and, and and there's far more emphasis on practice, I would say, maybe, or at least a particular type of practice within Zen uh, that may be different from those uh, who, as you mentioned earlier, are on the, on the path of enlightenment, which may somehow be, I guess, maybe somehow more subscribing to a, a doctrinal element within Buddhism. Maybe I'm, I'm not reading that right, but what would you just say to that? Like, the whole idea about ridding desire, uh, the whole idea of where, where Zen is in, say, the doctrinal understanding of, of some things like the Four Noble Truths and enlightenment. I don't know. Could you riff off any of that? Yeah, sure. One of the statements that I, I tell students that are new to Buddhism is the statement of when it's time to eat the cookie and thoroughly enjoy the cookie. The Zen and Buddhism it, it, in general it talks about clinging to desire. It's not about not enjoying what's going on. To be Zen as a verb or Zen as I'm so Zen in the modern vernacular has come to be something that means that you're always calm and you're never agitated and you're not terribly passionate about anything, but you're not terribly upset with anything either. You're just, just placid and calm. Mm. And that modern kind of usage is really not Zen. Mm-hmm. The Zen literally is the phenomenon of the universe. Like we have a Zendo, which is the place where we go and we sit and we experience Zen while we're in a sitting posture. You could have sitting on the bus Zen, you could have working at a computer Zen. It's the Zen of eating a cookie or having sex. It's it, This is what's happening right now. And Zen is about meeting the moment in the appropriate way. Mm-hmm. And sometimes the equanimity that comes from practicing Zen ends up being celebrated in a hyperbolic way. That is a goal Mm -hmm. rather than that's an offshoot of practice. I generally feel way calmer inside and way more centered inside than I did 15 years ago. And that is just a fruit of practice. But it doesn't mean that every situation that I'm in the best thing is to try to be calm on the outside. Now, I have experienced the phenomenon of being very, I guess you'd say, animated or passionate on the outside about something that's upsetting or needs addressing, while inside I feel really grounded and centered, which I didn't used to feel so much. And I think that's the thing that Zen gives people is like a deep anchor, while there still might be storms on the surface. I've seen people in Zen, uh, folks that I really respect, priests, get very stirred up about something that is unjust, that is unfair. Go to a protest rally, be an, uh, an advocate, a person that has been oppressed or what have you. It's not that there is no passion in life. But you can also, as anyone knows, if you've ever gotten involved in any protest movement, you can get so stirred up that it all becomes about us and them. Mm -hmm. And you start othering the world. And I've got my club and my tribe, and we're the ones that see everything correctly. And those people Mm -hmm. don't, and those people over there, and all of that. 
one of the um, original first generation San Francisco Zen Center people was our first abbess, um, Blanche Hartman. Um, she grew up in Alabama. I think she was born in 1930. I remember that correctly 19 no probably 1925 hmm. and she was involved in a lot of the protest movements she was a white woman but involved in a lot of the protest movements marches and what have you in the civil rights in the early 60s she was at the mall in washington with the speech on labor inequality from Martin Luther King Jr. She came to Zen Center and was very involved in Berkeley and a lot of the protests against the National Guard and nuclear proliferation in the late 60s. And she realized at one point in time, uh, while she was at a protest actually in Berkeley, that she was there and shouting and screaming and facing off with this young kid that was had a rifle that was a part of the National Guard that she actually wasn't grounded. And she, at that time, she was practicing at Zen Center and had been for a few years. And she took a year off of protests and got herself more collected and grounded herself in her practice because it's just, it's so easy to make it about us and them. But it's not that you can't thoroughly enjoy eating the cookie while you're eating the cookie if it's cookie time. Now, right. if, if you don't want to go and eat the whole bag, that's mm. going to spike your blood sugar. That's going to create a, maybe a habit loop for the, of escaping into sugar. And there's mm. all sorts of things where that's not cookie time anymore. But somebody gives you a great cookie, well, as long as you're not celiac, just enjoy the thing. <laughs> I guess there's many types of cookies, who knows? But And the same thing with sex, the same thing with music, the same thing with dance. But you can stir yourself up where you're, you're like, I used to equate excitement with happiness. Hmm. And then you, I try to like, if I'm ever feeling a little bit like blue or sad or just a little bit, things aren't great, always want to escape that. And, and, and society gives you so many ways to escape the, the human natural cycles of feeling happy and then feeling a little bit discouraged or whatever, and never really surfing what humanity gives you in being a human being. So you're always trying to turn on music while you're cooking, or you always have a TV show on the background while you're cleaning, or you've always got to have a podcast and, you know, anything, including Zen can be used as an escape. When you mm -hmm. asked about the whole navel gazing thing, people can and do come to Zen because they're just bothered by the world and they they want everyone to leave them alone, which is also funny because after two or three months, they realize, wow, now I'm like surrounded by people that are all trying to escape other people. And they were just as prickly as me. And I think that the intention of the Zen practice is for people to, number one, see their bother and their internal workings, their stories, and to start seeing through them as not so permanent and not so fixed narratives you bought into since you were a kid. And then also to realize that what it is preparing you for is honing your gut so that you can meet the moments as they arise in an appropriate way, rather than being such a easily bothered person that you can't even see what's going on in the moment. And you're just a reactionary to the other person's imperfections. And you're going to stumble across imperfections every day of your life. Mm -hmm. But if you can be a person that has worked with enough internal awareness and being willing to see your stuff, it expands the emotional reservoir. And then you can be with the moment and to maybe even realize it's not cookie time anymore, or this relationship has bad boundaries. 
And I need to either set better boundaries or I need to be more flexible or I need to get out of this relationship. But you can't even see those things in regard to balance unless you've done the inner work. Mm-hmm. So the whole thing is just trying to set people up to actually be able to meet the moment, as we say. That's so, that's so good. I want to get a little, little specific here, which is with something that, that I think is very related to what you're saying here. One of my favorite talks that you gave, this is probably about a couple of months ago now, was on the shadow side. I don't know if you remember that talk that you gave. And I um, was at the Zen Center that night. And the following Sunday, I had a preach at a Catholic mass and I used your talk. You should be getting royalties for that in some way. But uh, the gospel that I was preaching on was from the gospel of Matthew chapter 18. And I'm sure you probably know the story given your background in Christian theology. It's simply the story of uh, the servant who had a tremendous debt and the master forgives the debt, but then that same servant does not forgive the debt of a fellow servant to him. And then, of course, the master finds out and says, wait a minute, I forgave you your debt. The least you could have done was to forgive the debt of this other person. And, of course, you can scratch your head thinking, like, why didn't this guy get it? He was shown such so much mercy and compassion because he begged to have this debt removed, but he was not able to extend that same mercy and compassion to this other guy. Like, what what gives? And the way I read that through the lens of what you were talking about during your talk was that in some way, this servant who was forgiven the debt saw his inadequacies in this other person who had the debt and was being able, in a certain sense, saw his shadow side, saw the part that he didn't like about his own self about the fact that he wasn't able to pay off the debt on his own. He had to get the, get it forgiven. He had to beg to be have it forgiven. And so he's actually upset more with himself and throws that onto this other servant. Uh, it was the kind of the way that I was able to take a lot of the t- the talk that you gave and and apply it to the story because and I think that that makes sense in lots of ways because we are at least I I know I can say this for myself is that when I see something in and another person I don't like, it's because I don't like it within myself. And this is my way of dealing with it. And what you're suggesting here is that you can deal with it in a different way. So I don't know, like, how does that resonate with you? And do you see the, a certain type of intersection there with maybe here's a parable of Jesus, but you offer a practice that could actually help live the lesson of the parable? Yeah, no, it's a, that's a really interesting usage of that. And I totally see the link in that. And I like that because in other people, we do at times have aversion to our own mirror and there is something that triggers us in a fear sort of area. And I think that the looking, the being willing to look at my stuff candidly, openly, physiologically, as I feel the sensations in my body, does something to loosen and address that fear that makes it easier in some way for me to not especially have an aversion to someone that's basically emulating areas that I have not learned to accept yet in myself. (laughs) And from Plato's allegory of the cave, is these people that have all these stories 
around these monsters that are around the cave wall, which they've never seen. And there's all these narratives and fears, but they haven't actually seen the thing. They're just seeing shadows of the thing. And th this to me is a really interesting allegory, not too far after the Buddha's time, you have Plato writing about this phenomenon. And it's the phenomenon we all know from being three-year-old that thinks there's a monster under the bed. Mm -hmm. This is the worst thing you can do is pull the covers up higher. The most courageous thing and the best thing you can do is turn on the light and go look underneath the bed with a flashlight and stare right at the stuff. And mm -hmm. so the type of sitting that we do in Zen called Shikantaza is designed around that entire awareness of the human spirit about fear as opposed to a meditation where you put your mind on something specific like a mantra or my breath or that kind of thing shikantaza is just sitting with whatever comes up the beauty the ugliness the temptation the whatever and then learning not to add anything to it you're actually looking at the monster under the bed you're actually the brave person in Plato's allegory of the cave that goes around the cave wall and the stairs and sees that it's just a small animal or mouse or whatever it was that had the light source shining on it. But it's actually staring at the thing. When we're doing what you're talking about in Matthew 18, and the king is admonishing this person, I, I, I like that take because why is this person just being, and likely it is some sort of an aversion or fear that this person is emulating something that they have not come to grips with yet in themselves, but they haven't gone through any internal process yet to loosen that fear. It's just manifesting on the surface and you're getting that level of reaction. Yeah, because it's just dealing with the insecurity that comes from failure. Somehow something happened to you where you weren't able to pay back the debt and so much of, of, of yourself feels so inadequate because of either decisions you made or decisions that were made to you. And there's just this tendency to want to somehow find some tangible way to um, let go of that fear of frustration, that fear of failure. You know, I, I think it's something you see a lot. I mean, I, I'm also taken a little bit by how much of a deep dive you've done on talking about ritual. In Christianity, specifically Catholicism, if anything, ritual is everything. For me, as a priest, I, I have, honestly, I've gone through phases. I've been very much into ritual and very much enamored by it and being able to just accept it as a continuity of the lineage that I participate in. and. But then also as a priest, I've seen people lean so much into ritual that it's become almost superstitious or if anything, puts too much emphasis on somehow thinking that the person themselves can, so to speak, move God's hand to do something simply if you say the right prayers or look the, the certain way or act a certain way. That becomes like almost an obsessive compulsive approach to ritual. I like how you have approached this maybe in a different way where you have not found yourself idolizing ritual, nor thinking that somehow it's essential in order to cultivate a movement of the spirit, so to speak, or pleasing God or however else you want to look at it. So maybe as a way to come to an end with our conversation is for people who clearly understand ritual as being an essential ingredient to most religions, let's say. How does Zen actually look at ritual as not just simply 
something that one does to identify with religion, but it's actually tapping into the very core of what it means to be human. Because I think that's where you're really going at with it. I think in Zen, the forms are, are and the rituals are looked at as simply a raft to do work. The ritual itself is viewed as completely devoid of anything holy or anything of meaning, period, mm -hmm. except when someone has an experience with that helping them be better able to meet the moment to be more connected to their heart, to their appreciation, to their gratitude, to their empathy, to their lineage. The ritual is all in support of that human experience. And so ritual itself would not be maybe celebrated, which is one of the first things I try to talk to new students about. There's so much ritual and so much form walking around with your hands in a certain way, dark robes, a lot of silence, very specific things and choreography in the rooms. And it can create a fear of this is like super formal. Mm -hmm. But in reality, none of it really matters until it, it takes root for an individual in their spiritual path. And chanting actually helps center them around something that is a principle in their daily life that is connected to their spiritual practice, whether it be the bowing in the morning and how it's a reminder of humility or whether it is chanting the ancestors and remembering the respect and gratitude for the lineage as they passed it down, stopping by the bathroom in the little altar that's outside every bathroom. And before you go to the bathroom, stopping and bowing to the altar in a very specific way, not because if I don't, I feel that I'm going to be punished for it. It's just an opportunity that if I want to remember to not be in such a rush and to be with my body and mind, what better time to remind myself than when I'm in a rush to go to the bathroom. Mm -hmm. And so it's right outside mm -hmm. the bathroom and it's just like, no, I've got three seconds. And so the, the ritual is can end up being worshipped. When I first came to Zen Center, I think did worship the ritual, some of the ritual, wanting to learn all the chant book or learn all the forms or what have you just wanted to be the good monk but none of that was really the thing that's worshiping the raft as they call it the raft helps you get from one shore to the other mm -hmm. but it's just there in service of the human experience and so i try to work with people that a lot of my students work in tech or work in finance and i try to work with them for what rituals can they put in place that remind them of their appreciation for what they're doing and why they're doing it and keep that centered rather than the ritual itself being celebrated. Yeah, no, that, that's great. Yes, we'll come to a close with our time here. And I'm just curious as to, since you have a, such a strong background in Christianity, and we didn't really talk a little bit about really maybe the brand of Christianity that you were associated with, so to speak, but what hope do you have for say, more interreligious type of dialogue with Buddhism, let's just say Zen Buddhism, and people who are Christian. I know for myself personally, I've grown in tremendous ways in my practice of Zen. I've never felt that it somehow was challenging anything doctrinally when it came to, say, Christianity. But also, I also look at Christianity as being a very universal experience. I think that it's not something that becomes 
very isolated from just the human experience. So maybe I have a different way of just understanding that part of my life. For yourself, how have you seen a certain type of connection to say your early life and your early experience with say Christianity and, and where you are now and what's your hope for others who may not have not grown up with an awareness of Zen Buddhism, came from a different religious tradition or no religious tradition. How can this all kind of work together? Because I, I think that there is something here that's really getting to the core of what it means to be human more than it, what it means to be religious. I think with every religion that I've spent some time studying, and the, the main ones would be Christianity, Buddhism, and Islam, mm -hmm. I would also say Judaism, because the church that I was in actually believed that the Jews were the ones who kept the law, and that the modern church had actually lost some of the original Old Testament from the Jewish tradition. So that was their kind of take on Christian theology. So we celebrated Passover. We celebrated several things from Leviticus 23 and Deuteronomy 5 that had to do with the different holy days in the old Christian church, which is really more celebrated by the Jewish faith now. So with those four, I see a lot of overlap of the circles. And the the place that the 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 biggest overlap is that when you look at the the Buddhist philosophers and the Christian mystics and the Jewish thinkers that look at pan-universal issues and people, mm -hmm. Brother David Standel Rost, these folks really are saying the same thing. You get to a high enough level and they're talking about the alleviation of suffering, living to benefit your brother, trying to find a way to do inner work so that you can be a gift to the world. Mm -hmm. This is really what all of the, I think that at the 50,000 foot level, people are wanting to do with religion. The, the differences is where I think people get into most of the trouble is the, so someone asked the Buddha, what happens, where do we come from and what happens when we die? Mm -hmm. And the Buddha's answer was, that's not the question. And the, the typical Zen Buddhist answer, but he's essentially saying what matters most is what you're doing right now with the person in front of you mm -hmm. and spend all your time there. And I think that that's where the temptation for humanity to misuse a spiritual path is to either one, deify ritual so that, like you said, I could move God's hand by doing a certain thing, or I can find a way to almost go on autopilot. If I do these things, then I'll be okay. Right. And the most daunting thing is to undertake a spiritual path, which I think is the original Christian path, which is to be not on autopilot, but be paying attention to the moment and what's appearing right in front of you and how to meet that moment rather than, okay, now I've got it all figured out. And that's a scary way to live. But I think the future will be for hopefully any spiritual path to have a little bit looser reins on its dogma, for lack of a better term. I think it's a respect for the fact that at a 50,000 foot level, we are all saying the same thing and not being quite so sure of what might be going on with someone else who looks like they're practicing in a way that's different than me. Yeah, that's great.
Michael, this has been a lot of fun. I really appreciate this time with you. And uh, how about you just maybe just share a little bit about how people can either find you. I know that you do coaching and also just helping would you call it spiritual direction? What's the term? Yeah, I, just, I would be a teacher in the Zen tradition that would help mm. people find their path, if you will. And, yeah. and people that I work with do not have to identify as Buddhists, and many don't. In fact, I even had a student the other day I'd been working with for four years, and he looked at me and said, do you think I'm a Buddhist? And I was like, <laughs> I don't know. Um, <laughs> if you think you're a Buddhist, then sure. They were right. having to come back in the U.S. and they had one of those little travel cards where they ask you yeah. like your religion. You know, it's like, yeah. do I check Buddhist or what? Do I, you, know? <laughs> you, you tell me. There, there's no, but yeah, people can find me to, to basically talk about uh, unpacking their life, and I try to provide a mirror to what I'm hearing. This is what I'm hearing from a Buddhist context and not from a psychiatric or psychology context, but more just from the context of. Yeah, this is what I'm hearing from you. And and I meet with students every two or three weeks, or sometimes I have some students, I have one student that runs a, an executive coaching service, and they contact me once a quarter, and it's just like, all right, I want to download all this stuff and talk about it. That's so it can great. take many different forms, yeah. but yeah. Is there any way that, is there anything you want to share with us as to how we could learn more about Zen or about the work you do or about the Zen Center? I know that I was actually just re-listening to your shadow side talk this morning. So I know that all those talks are on the Young Urban Zen website. But is there, and we could put all this in the show notes as well too, but is there any particular place you think is a good starting point for people? If people went to find me, you would just go to SFZC, like San Francisco Zen Center, mm -hmm. SFZC.org. Mm -hmm. And if you typed my last name, McCord, M-C-O-R-D, into any search box, you would find any talk I gave in the past, which includes my bio and how to get in touch with me and that kind of thing. But I can say that here. It's michael.mccord at SFZC.org. And I think that as far as looking into Zen, people can come to the website and check out talks. They can come to Zen Center in person. Um, they can come to Young Urban Zen. The schedule for everything is on the website at sfzc.org. And as far as books, Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind is a, a classic by yeah. the founder of San Francisco Zen Center. Probably one of the preeminent Zen teachers that's living right now is Shahaka Okamura. And he just retired. And his teacher's book that he translated is called Opening the Hand of Thought. And I tell students to, if you read those two books, you will have a good understanding at least of what Zen is about. Mm. But those two books are a great place to start. Beginner's Mind, Zen Mind. It's a great book. I've used it also in other homilies. Thank you so much, Michael. Really appreciate this and uh, look forward to continuing the conversation in some way. And I'm definitely yeah. looking forward to seeing you at the Zen Center. You too, John. It's always great to talk with you and I would love to hang out and have lunch and all the stuff that you talk about. It, you spark my thoughts and creativity and hopefully stay in touch for many years to come. Uh, that sounds like a really good deal, Michael. Thanks so much. Take care. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Attentive Heart Podcast. We hope that you were able to find it helpful in your spiritual journey and practice. 
This podcast is produced in collaboration with Sunday to Sunday Productions and The Witness Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support the podcast, please subscribe and share it with friends.